As we come back together this morning, uh, we are uh, right now just uh, riffing off of the lectionary. We're going through the Christmas readings. We've been going through the Advent readings and taking opportunity to, to look at those texts. Uh, again, texts that are being read all over the world by Christ's church. Uh, and it is a blessing to be reflecting on the same text as so many of our other brothers and sisters on this Lord's Day. And it is uh, no small uh, coincidence that these readings are, are well coordinated. And they bring certain themes to mind. So on this Sunday, when we reflect on the first Sunday of Christmas and who Christ is, it's not surprising that we have this wonderful text in 1 Samuel and then how Luke brings to mind that same notion of who Christ is, a greater Samuel, one who comes and serves before the Lord and grows in stature because of his character because of how he interacts with people. And Samuel, in his faithful service, in contrast to Eli's knuckle-headed sons, and in the same way, Jesus' faithful service, even as he comes into the temple and engages with a generation that both had a longing for God to return, but at the same time, and in their own way, had become very lost and alienated from the God who created them and set them apart. And so this morning, we're going to look a little bit at the, the character and the quality uh, behind these interactions, uh, the character that marked Samuel's life, the character that marked Jesus's life even uh, more so. And so we're going to do that by looking at Colossians chapter 3, a uh, famous passage. We'll be looking at uh, verses 12 through 17. I'm reading out of the NIV. Please follow along if you have uh, your Bible with you. Hear now God's word. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive us as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through Him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. Grateful that you have led us through this worship by your spirit, grateful that you sent your son. And we ask that as we reflect again on your word, made flesh and brought to life in our hearts by your spirit, that we might be changed, encouraged and fed. And Lord, whatever is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So one of the big 
transitions in my life. One of the, re- one of the ways I knew that I'd really left home was that first, I don't know, probably third week in college when I finally had to do laundry, right? Because even though I'd lived uh, a long time uh, at the farm, uh, I'd go for an entire summer, Grandma, of course, did my laundry. Yes, I was working hard. Yes, I wasn't at home. But yes, my grandmother did my laundry. And three weeks in, I'd completely run out of clothes, of course. And I had to learn how to do laundry. I learned that it was expensive. Uh, I learned that you probably shouldn't wash certain things together, at least not in hot water. Uh, I learned that there was this thing called static electricity, which I kind of knew about. But I also found out that it put clothes in various places so that I'd often wear socks on the back of shirts uh, and was a sock that I had been missing. Uh, and And it led to a certain way in which I developed a particular style at college. I wore red sweats and uh, a pullover kind of hoodie thing that the kids now affectionately call a drug rug that I'd picked up on a short-term mission trip in Mexico. And this became sort of my style. And yes, I met my wife at college and she married me. So there were times I apparently dressed differently. But there's a way in which uh, over time I just kept wearing the same thing over and over again because it was easier than figuring out how to do the other things. You just sort of put a big pile and I'd throw it in uh, my uh, 1970 Grand Marquis, which was a massive car, which meant I could take many, many tons of dirty laundry back to my poor mother in Virginia and, and wash things again. And the way I was clothed probably said a fair amount about my commitment to either hygiene or any other topic in my life at that point. It was sort of just go with the flow and roll with it and not really worry. And that gave off a certain air. And when Paul talks about putting on new clothes and what that means, it's not so much that we need to think about what style of clothing we wear. Is there, you know, do we all need to start putting on ties again when we uh, go to church? Dave Mailer's now reconsidering, you know, becoming an elder. No, but we, we think about these things. It's, it's not about a style that says, a particular fashion is the only way we should show up before God. That is how we get into trouble about judging the outward manifestations. The analogy begins to break down, but what Paul is talking about is there was a way in which before Christ, we were robed in a certain demeanor and character. We wore it on our faces, we acted it out with our hands, and we spoke it out of our mouths. And now in Christ, we are robed and clothed in a new way, with a new demeanor, and it should be seen for all the world. And so what does it look like then for us to have a clothing, a a, a raiment, a garb that communicates what we see in Samuel and what we see in Luke, where as they lived, they grew in stature and favor before God and before people. What does it look like to have a character that gathers that? Because certainly we see negative examples of it, and Eli's sons certainly are. They had power. You had to go through them to offer the sacrifice at the tabernacle. They had power and they had authority, and they were using it poorly. And what was their report? Of course, it was bringing shame to Eli's family, but also to the name of the Lord. 
because of how they acted in their power and in their position. So I want us to look very quickly at three uh, ways, three uh, H's, the habits of the king that mark off this new raiment, the heart of the king, and finally hearing the words of the king. So the habits, the heart, and the words. Uh, so what are the habits? Well, according to Paul here, uh, the first couple of verses uh, we're looking at in verse 13, it's compassion. Interestingly enough, the Greek word, and it's been too long since I took Greek, so I would butcher the pronunciation. But the Greek word here means bowels from the very depths of who we are. It's not a heart word. It is, in fact, this idea that my very being, our notion of guts, are one in which compassion comes from us. Our deepest response to our gut reaction to need is compassion, not judgment, not disdain. We don't walk on the other side of the road when we see the guy beaten and laying bloody in a ditch because we've got things to do. There is a way in which we notice in Jesus's ministry, he regularly stops for people and listens to them, whether it is that miraculous uh, incident where a woman touches him, he feels power going out, he stops. Because he knows that someone touched him because they needed to be ministered to and healed, and that was something that he slowed down to and honored her and encouraged her. It was his ability and willingness to not just stop for them, but stop for the ostracized, stopping at Matthew's in Levi's tax collecting booths, in the middle of everybody surrounding him and giving dignity and honor to people created in the image of God, which changed the way they did their job. Compassion. Instead of, I mean, again, you can only imagine what people walked by, what they said when they walked by the tax booth. It probably wasn't good to see you, Matthew. Jesus has compassion on one who in that moment was even being used by Rome and Herod. So there is this, this gut reaction of compassion. It comes from our bowels as we recognize the, the common humanity in another in need. And we care. There is kindness. And of course, again, think about how many times Paul lists characteristics that are the fruit of the Spirit. That life within us increasingly builds this sense in which we respond in these ways. And so Paul is repeating to all of the churches, it wasn't just for the church in Galatia that they needed the fruit of the Spirit, but he reiterates in all of the difficulties that churches face, in almost every letter he has these short verses where he lists almost the exact same characteristics to the church. And of course, we know that kindness is one that is expressed regularly. I didn't realize this in, in, in my study. I came across the idea that, that uh, in Psalm 34, verse 8, when we, and I, I mean, this is anyway, you, you learn your whole life, right? That when we say taste and see that the Lord is good, that actually in the uh, Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is taste and see that the Lord is kind. It's the same Greek word. The kindness of the Lord. Kindness is something that is palpable. We know when we are being treated with kindness. 
not just pacified, not just tolerated, but with kindness. Humility. Uh, again, I knew this, but it was just good to be reminded that Josephus in his uh, writings uses the same word here that's translated humility uh, really to speak of the mean-spiritedness of people. The pagans really didn't, and again, pagan was a fine word back then, didn't have much room for humility. It wasn't a virtue. It was something that seemed more like guile, more manipulative than a positive thing. And Paul and Christians redeem this word, restructure it and give it a meaning where there is ability to serve and care for the other out of a position of strength and service. It's not an attempt to manipulate, but it's a recognition of what it means to be created and not a creator. So if I am a created being, I have the ability to serve humbly because the gifts that I'm given are not mine by my own right, but they are those that I am a steward of. Christ, who was always present, chose equality to be with God something not to be grasped, but made himself nothing, becoming humble, allowing himself to be one who was led by the Father, directed by the Father, gifted by the Father, had to ask the Father to do good things for him by the Spirit, the humility of service, gentleness and patience. Again, that great challenge of gentleness and patience in a world that never slows down, in a world in which it seems that to be gentle and patient is to be run over and to be manipulated. These are the characteristics, these are the habits of the king. We can't say that these are ideas that God thought it'd be fun to watch us try and work out. That would be rather cool. Cruel, 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 cruel. If God sat back at a distance and said, here are some things that I know will really humiliate you. So I would like you all to try and be nice and kind and humble. And I don't have to worry about it because I'm the creator of the universe. But I'm going to judge your ability to be in my presence by how well you can jump through these hoops. But of course, the good news of the gospel is that we have a king who actually exemplifies these things. It is his interaction with me and with you. It is in his very moving compassion. When he walks by Jerusalem as he's heading in and he sees it, and he is moved so deeply with compassion that he says, I have longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. That town was about to nail him to a cross. And in his very deepest bowels, he had compassion because they were blind and did not know the evil that they did out of their own fear and anxiety and any number of other motivations that brought people to fear who Christ was enough to want him removed from the scene. And even in recognizing that that was evil and even in recognizing that there would be a price to pay, he was compassionate And he longed for them to know the truth. His kindness, his humility, his gentleness, his unending patience. We have a God who communicates himself to us 
in these characteristics, in these virtues. He understands how difficult it is. We even see how, without sin, Jesus can express the difficulty of interacting with fallen people, particularly his disciples, and particularly in the Gospel of Mark, when his disciples regularly have a difficult time believing who he is, and Jesus has to say, where is your faith? And yet he does not leave his gentleness and his patience, even as he speaks firmly. Why is that? Because the heart of the king is perfect love, verses 14 and 15. Again, Paul's glorious, glorious chapter in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, all of the knowledge, all of the power, all of the self-control, all of the wisdom, and without the fundamental ethic of love, without the character quality of love, all of the ways in which love is played out in Scripture, without love it is really meaningless religion. It's just a way to spend time. Maybe not even the most useful way to spend time, but with love. The love of God poured out on us. It's not because he finds us interesting. It's not because he has fiduciary responsibilities because he made us. It's because he loves us. He created us in his image that he might delight walking with you in the garden, knowing your life intimately, sharing it with you. He loves you and he loves us. He is motivated by love that I can scarcely fathom because mine is so fleeting and temperamental and manipulative and 15 other things that pervert the nature of love. The heart of the king is one of perfect love for his people. It is what allows us then to bear with one another, to forgive one another, Love is the undergirding, the foundation for the ability to truly forgive. To be forgiven, to bear with one another. It is why Paul thinks it's so important for the community of faith. Again, not that that kind of love shouldn't be present in a marriage, but the problem is when we make 1 Corinthians 13 a cute little thing we read at weddings, we miss the fact that the context is the church. And it might not be surprising that if we have a difficult time exemplifying that love in our marriages, maybe it's because it's not being exemplified in the community of faith that our marriages find themselves in. What if it's our ability to model that love for one another in brotherly and sisterly love in Christ, the deeper ethic of that that might create a context for what on earth it looks like in marriage when I have to figure out who left the cap off the toothpaste. And there's really only one person that I could imagine and that was probably me. Or whatever things that annoy us. And those things seem absurd. But if I've gone down the road several steps in my self-absorbed love, the thing that usually sets me off is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. If I was halfway sober and not embellished and drunk on my own sense of self-importance and woundedness and victimized in the way that I am being treated in my marriage and looked at it for a moment, that's an absurd thing to be livid about. The only thing that brings sobriety is love. And then it brings rapture, which is a whole other way 
of being joyous and celebratory and excited. It's proof of reality, not an escape. My anger, my inability to forgive, my harboring my victim status, whether it's true or not, I feel it. That, that stupor that's created by that perverts everything I see. But the love of God, when that fills me, that allows me to forgive in a way in which now the world is joyous and I feel encouraged. It's still hard. But I see clearly my own part. Love allows me to see my own part in a difficulty. Self-absorbed love only allows me to see the failures of the other and how that has robbed me of my happiness in that day. The love of God is clearly not driven by whether or not I make him happy on a daily basis. It is driven by his transcendent love for his decision to say, I love you and I will never forsake you. That is the heart of the king. And it allows for the richness of community course you know that all of these we's and these you's, these you's are actually we's, right? They're all plural you's. It's all the context of community. And so as we move to this last one, it's not surprising that clearly this is not private meditation and study. Not that we don't sing to ourselves in the shower or maybe when we are working, but hearing the word of the king in verse 16 has a collective sense and we are doing it by singing psalms to one another and reading to one another and singing spiritually inspired songs. There's a collective nature to hearing the word of God and growing in our knowledge of who God is and abiding in his word. It can't simply happen by ourselves. As attractive as it is to think about the, you know, the, uh, the desert fathers and mothers who went off and separated themselves from life to be with God Yes, Jesus did go off to quiet places, but he did not spend his life there. The good idea of being able to go off and love God and have enough space so that I don't actually have to endure other people, I get very philosophical about love for people when I actually don't have to deal with them. I'm very loving from a distance. That's why I love Bed Midler's song. From a distance, I can watch and love everybody. Just stay over there. But when I have to listen to you, submit myself to you, engage with you, I'm going to need God's love because my love won't be big enough. And I'm going to need you to remind me of those things because we're called to be a body. There's no way around the communal nature of what it is to be God's people. And it is that interdependence because I believe a lot of wrong things a lot of them about myself. Sometimes they are things where I am overly critical. Sometimes I'm overly optimistic. And hearing God's word from you and encouraged by you, reminding me of the love of God, the joy, the correction of God, and why certain things that I find somewhat palatable and can rationalize, I really shouldn't. Whether it's how I spend my time or my money, or how compassionate I am, or whether I'm willing to forgive somebody who really did wrong me, I'm going to need you to speak into my life through songs and hymns, and I need to submit to your bringing the word of God to me. 
And we need to submit to one another. It's not a surprise that Paul brings this up a lot too in his letters. Because as human beings, we would love to have a direct line with God and we'll settle all of our issues on a vertical uh, plane as opposed to dealing with God using the horizontal plane to correct us and challenge us. It is through the words of the king in a corporate way that we are fed and encouraged. And again, we've heard this all the way through the sermon, but you can't conclude without being reminded of verse 12, because we are dear to him. That love is that we are dear to him. That he didn't leave us alone to figure these things out, but he came. And then it wasn't just enough that we were dear enough for him to tell us. He realized we couldn't, which is what Christ does, a king who gives himself that we might have a new heart, that we might have infused into us the fruit of the Spirit. And what we have to realize is I'm not generating patience. I'm not generating gentleness. I don't have to become these things. What I have to do is stop getting in the way of God's new heart in me functioning in the way it's supposed to. If we really are new creations, if we really do have a new heart, if we really have been wiped clean because of what Christ did, if we've been given this, if we are co-heirs with Christ, if we are new creations, then my problem is I keep acting the old way. I get in the way of who I really am now. That's one of the things that makes this not a religion, but the gospel. Religion tells you how to get to God. God says, do these five things and you'll get to me. The gospel says, I changed who you are. Listen to me telling you who you really are. You really are loving and patient. Well, I don't feel that. I know you don't, but you haven't learned who you are yet. Let me tell you the good news of who you are because you are dear to me. Let God do his work in you, revealing who he made you to be when you confessed your need for a new heart to be washed clean. Let God work out who he is in your life. It takes a great deal of stress off. It also removes a lot of control, which is awkward in my life. But the good news of the gospel is God has given us these things through Christ. It is who you are. And we celebrate in this season the gifts of the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and merciful. We ask now that you would, again, feed us as we head into communion. Bless us as we go out. Lord, thank you for the goodness of what you have given us. How amazing it is to think that in this season, the gift is you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.